following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from LifePoint Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Romans chapter 12 today. We are between series, so last week we finished 2 Peter, and uh, Lord willing, uh, next Sunday we're going to uh, begin a study on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Uh, so uh, today is a good opportunity for us to uh, just revisit our theme for the year, uh, Devoted to God. So uh, remember that, that we have been emphasizing this year that God has set us apart to Himself. Uh, the idea, you know, just as, 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 as the temple, the tabernacle, the priests in Israel's sacrificial system, all of that was, was set apart to the, from the world. It was God's special possession so we've talked about the fact that, that we have been set apart to the Lord. And, and that is a wonderful privilege, isn't it? I mean, it is a gift that, that God would call us to Himself, that we would be His special people. But of course, with it also comes a, an incredible a duty that, that God has, has radically altered the course of my life. And I belong to Him. I have been devoted to Him. And, and so it needs to change how I live. And, and today... I just want to continue to emphasize this concept by, by looking at a, a very familiar but, but very important text in Romans chapter 12 that, that teaches us about how we need to respond to the marvelous mercy we have received by living lives that are devoted to the Lord. So Romans 12 verse 1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now again, this is a, a very familiar text. Now I grew up in the church. I don't know how many times I've heard people preach on this text, reference this text. Uh, but as I was reflecting on it this week, studying it in, in detail, I was reminded about why it is that people love this passage so much and why it is that we reference it so often. It's because this passage is, is both theological, and there's a lot going on in this passage, but also extremely practical. It is encouraging, but also it is very convicting. It is full of the grace of God. But it also calls us to a high task, a high, a high calling, and it gives practical help for actually getting there. So, so even if you've heard a hundred sermons on this passage, you memorized it in Awana as a kid, you think you've got it mastered, there is something for, this, for all of us in, in this passage. And, and just thinking through the structure of the passage, uh, the center of these verses is the challenge uh, there in verse 1 to present your bodies as a sacrifice to God. All right, so, so that's the main thing he's calling you to do. Give your life to Christ. And then verse 2 uh, tells us practically how we do that. So, so how do I make my life a living sacrifice? I must transform how I think, and I must transform how I make decisions in practical living. So, so those are kind of the two major sections of the passage, but, but for the sake of ease, I want to divide it into four challenges. And so the first challenge is to remember God's mercies. 
Remember God's mercy. So, so notice that before Paul gets to that main challenge to present your bodies, he frames it by saying, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Now, it would be very easy for us to just kind of skip over that statement as, as kind of a you know, perfunctory introduction to the really important stuff. But, but it's important that we recognize that that little statement at the opening of verse 1 is vital to what is going to follow. So first of all, uh, that word, therefore, is a major hinge in the book of Romans. And, and, so, and so Paul uh, indicates that, that, that what is coming in this challenge, all right? So I am to present my bodies as a living sacrifice. That therefore tells me that I do so based on everything that Paul has already said in verse, excuse me, in chapters 1 through 11. And if you know Romans, you know that those chapters give the most detailed explanation of the gospel in the entire New Testament. It is a wonderful section of Scripture. So Paul begins in chapter 1 by telling us that, that our sin has left us hopelessly condemned before God. I have broken God's law, and Paul argues that there is nothing I can do to resolve my own sin, or to rescue myself from God's judgment. So Jesus did what I could never do for myself. He bore my sin in His body on the cross. He took my punishment so so that He could credit to me His perfect righteousness. And what's so incredible is that I don't have to do anything to earn that. I simply receive it by faith. And then chapters 5 through 8 detail the many blessings that I have because of my relationship to Jesus. And those are probably my favorite chapters in the entire Bible as as Paul just walks through blessing after blessing that is mine because of the fact that I am in Christ. And then finally, chapters 9 through 11 set my salvation in the context of God's redemptive purpose for all of history. And it really is incredible to to think about how God has saved me as part of His eternal purpose to glorify Himself. So praise be to God for His marvelous grace. So so, so when Paul says at the opening of verse 1, therefore, he's looking back on everything that he has said, and he sums it all up as the mercies of God. So Paul tells me, You have been blessed beyond measure. And what's so incredible is I can't take any credit for it. Right? Sometimes we talk about our blessings. You know, you might talk about the family you have or or the nice home that you have. and, And you say that you're blessed, but you really mean I worked hard for all of this. But we can't take any credit for any of these mercies. They are mercy. I deserve condemnation. I deserve wrath. But God has blessed me with manifold mercy, both for today and for all of eternity. And it is vitally important that we appreciate those mercies. Because you will never appreciate or or rightly understand the duty that, that, that is coming in this passage. Unless you see it from the perspective of the mercy that you have received. I mean, the only way that you will gladly do what God is going to call you to do in this passage is if you have a full vision of the mercies of God. 
And I would add as well that the only way that you will appreciate the power that you have to actually do this is if you understand that God didn't just give you a home in heaven. He gave you power to live a transformed life. So, so all of this is in reach, and all of this is something I want to do because of the mercy of God. So, so it's important here at the outset of the sermon that we understand that within true gospel Christianity, grace drives duty. And that's different from most other religions. You know, in just about every other religion in the world, we, we, we fulfill duties to receive grace, right? I do this, I go here, I don't do that so that God will be kind to me. But in, in true gospel Christianity, I have been given a manifold, the manifold mercies of God. And it's in response to that that I present my body to the Lord as a living sacrifice. So Christian, remember the mercies of God. I was listening to a sermon on this text uh, this week, and the preacher said that for every glance you take at your duty, take a hundred glances at the mercy of God. Now, he was not making a technical statement there, like you need to tally that. He's making a little bit of an exaggerated point, but but the point stands that, that if I am going to think rightly about my duty, I must fundamentally and primarily keep a focus on the grace that I have received so so that I am thankful for for my life in Christ and so that I believe that that by the power of God's grace, I can do what God has called me to do. So, So remember God's mercies. And then the second and primary challenge of this text is gladly devote yourself to the Lord. Gladly devote yourself to the Lord. So Paul says there in verse 1, I beseech you, or or you could say, I strongly urge you to respond to the mercy of God by presenting your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And and so so notice there, uh, he he calls us to present our bodies, and, and Paul there is clearly drawing on imagery from the Old Testament sacrificial system. So, so think of it as, as this, when, when an Israelite would bring a sacrifice to the temple, they would present that animal to the Lord. They presented a sacrifice. And, and, and don't forget, too, that when they brought these sacrifices to the temple, they were making a costly sacrifice. And you all know I grew up on a farm, and, and so I remember as a kid, you know, times when, when we would have a, a calf die or a hog that was about ready to go to the market that would die. And, and my dad would, would be upset. He, he would grieve because you know, he had invested a lot in those animals and, and they were worth a lot of money. And, and so it was difficult to lose one. You know, so think about the fact that when an Israelite brought an animal to the temple as a burnt offering, I mean, they were giving up something that was an important source of food or an important source of income for their family. So it was costly. But, but God here tells us in the New Testament that, we don't, that He doesn't just demand an animal from us. No, God commands you to present your bodies to the Lord. Now, I think on, on the one hand, Paul highlights the body because it especially fits the image of, uh, of an Israelite bringing a sacrifice to the temple. Just like they brought an animal, I present my body. Uh, but it also highlights the totality of the sacrifice. After all, there's a lot of people in our culture that will tell you that they love Jesus, 
you know, I love God. You tell them I'm a Christian. They say, oh yeah, I love Jesus too. But then you start to ask them questions about their life and they don't love God. You know, they, they, they say they love God, but their life doesn't actually, they're, 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 what they do with their body doesn't actually demonstrate it. And God does not just want you to say that you love Him. You know, back in January, maybe you remember that we looked at 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, and, and we saw that my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It belongs to Him. And so my appearance... My every action, all that I do with my body needs to accurately reflect the fact that it belongs to God. And of course, what, what people see on the outside has to reflect a, a genuine heart of submission to Him. You know, because God has no interest in hypocrisy. And he wants a heart that drives behavior. So, so He demands that I present my whole person as a sacrifice to God. That, that so to speak, I put it on the altar. Now, I do want to mention uh, that he is not so much here commanding us to make a one-time sacrifice of our body. So, you know, I remember being taught as a kid that, you know, that, that, that I was saved, and, and now I needed to dedicate or, or surrender my life to the Lord. And, and so what I was, you know, I was called to do was, was to come forward, pray, and, and surrender my life to Christ. You know, as if a believer cannot be a follower of Christ, and as if I could pray and surrender my life to God, and, and boom, everything becomes different. But, but that's not how it works. I mean, my flesh will be with me till the day that I die or see Jesus. So, so it's not that I just one time present my life to the Lord. No, I need to daily, and oftentimes, moment by moment, choose to submit to the Lordship of Christ. So when my flesh begins to push and, 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 and drive me towards something that doesn't honor the Lord, I say, Lord, here am I. Do with me whatever you desire. I belong to you. And then notice that Paul describes this sacrifice with three adjectives. He says, it is a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice. Now, a lot of the translations set living off as, as separate from the others, but, but really, they're all parallel. So, so we ought to just see this as three adjectives. So, so, so there's some debate about that first one, living. What exactly is the significance of that? But I think just the simplest answer is, is that living is the opposite of dead. So, so when Israel would bring a sacrifice to the temple, it was slaughtered, and that was the end of the animal's life. And, and, and God is saying, that's not how it works for us. I am a living sacrifice. I, I don't just give my life to the Lord one time, I give it to him every moment of every day. I am a living sacrifice. And then the second adjective is holy. And holy, in a sacrificial context, speaks of devotion to God. Now, I do not belong to the world anymore. I am set apart to the Lord. Like a priest, like, like the tabernacle, the temple was set apart to God. I am his and so I need to be pure in reflection of His character. And then I need to present my body as an acceptable sacrifice. And, and the idea behind that is, is, is that, that I need to, to present myself in a way that is acceptable to God, fundamentally. Not to myself. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter 
if, if I think I'm an acceptable sacrifice, or if your mom or your dad or your brother or your sister thinks you're an acceptable sacrifice, or people in this church, what matters is that I am pleasing to Him. I want to be acceptable to my Lord. And, and together, these adjectives remind us that God will not accept just any sacrifice. Now remember that, that Israel, if they brought a lame animal or, or a deformed animal to the temple for sacrifice, God rejected it. And similarly for us, God will not accept the scraps of our life. He demands all of me. He demands the best of me. He demands that that I live in such a way that my life is, is holy and acceptable and pleasing to Him. He demands everything I have. So God is calling me to live for His pleasure and His glory not for myself. And then notice the final statement in verse 1. Paul says of all of this that it is your reasonable service. And the Greek word that's translated there, reasonable, or or depending on your translation, you might have, um, or excuse me, the word translated uh, worship. Uh, uh, Well, it's service. Some translations have service. Uh, Some translations have worship. And the reason for that is because the, the Greek word here is a fascinating word. It's the word latria, and, uh, and it combines the concepts of worship and service into a single term. So that's why sometimes it's translated worship, sometimes it's translated service. And when we think of this concept of service slash worship, we ought to think of the priests serving in the temple. So, so their life was worship, right? I mean, everything they did was, was about worshiping God. So, so, so they offered sacrifices to God, and, and they uh, worked to atone for people's sins and, and to glorify God through, through thank offerings and all sorts of other things. So, so everything they did was about worship. But, but their worship was not standing in one spot singing songs or sitting down to listen to a sermon. No, when they were worshiping in the temple, they were busy. You know, they had to tend the fire on the altar. They were, they were slaughtering animals. They were cutting them up. I mean, it was hard work. You know, so I imagine at the end of the day, I mean, those guys, they were, they were dirty. They were sweaty. They smelled. They were exhausted. Now, now, there were, of course, regulations about how smelly and dirty they could get while serving in the temple. But it was hard work. And that's the kind of service slash worship that Paul has in mind in here. And he, he reminds us that we don't just worship God on Sundays, as important as that is. No, I worship God in every act of obedience, every resistance of the flesh. You know, if you were here yesterday planting a bush or, or cleaning a toilet, If you were doing it with the right heart, you were worshiping God because you were serving Him, glorifying Him through your commitment to Him. So so Paul here is saying that all of life is worship. Everything I do, from the most menial task in your house to the biggest aspect of ministry, should be a beautiful testimony of, of, of of my love for my Savior and of my commitment to Him. But But maybe you hear all this. And, and you think, though, well, well that all sounds good. But, but I think for all of us, when we read through a verse like this, there's an aspect of our, of our defenses start to go up, right? So, 
present my body as a living sacrifice? I mean, isn't God asking too much? Or, or, or if it touches on this one part of my life, I don't know if I want to give that to Him. Like, I, I like this part of my life, and, and God doesn't really need all of me, does He? Maybe I can present a sacrifice of 95.5 part of my life. Well, what does, how does Paul answer that? Well, he says that this is your reasonable service. And that's another, that, that adjective reasonable is another interesting term. Uh, the Greek word is logikos, and we get our word logical from it. And so, Paul, so God is saying to us that what he demands is not outlandish. No, it is reasonable. It is logical. So, so think today about the mercies that you have received if you are a Christian. You have been justified, even though you're a sinner. You have been adopted into the family of God. I mean, God is your Father. You've been given eternal life. So, so God has given us incredible mercies. And he, didn't, and he did all of this at a very high price. It cost Jesus his life to give us these blessings. So, so when you consider all that God has done for us, his demands are more than reasonable. God's saying to you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. God says, this is right. This is reasonable for you. So Christian, I want to urge you to gaze on the incredible mercies that you have received. Be amazed at everything that Christ has done and at the power that He has given you to do this. You know, I want to emphasize again that, that when He tells you to present your body a living sacrifice, you know, it's not like God is telling you to hike Mount Everest with a, with a broken leg. You can pursue godliness. You can present your body a living sacrifice because of the power of God's grace. So present your body and your whole life as a sacrifice to God. This week, with with every decision you make, with every priority that you establish, there needs to be a conscious choice to say, Lord, I give myself to you. Whatever you want is what I will do. So gladly devote yourself to the Lord. And then the third major challenge of this text is purify your mind and your heart. Purify your mind and your heart. So so verse 2 goes on to say, and just remember the logic of the passage, so, so in light of the mercy of God, he gives the command to present your body a living sacrifice and holy and acceptable. So, so how do I present a holy and acceptable sacrifice to God? Well, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So, so I want to emphasize here that, that Paul puts the emphasis on the transformation of the mind. And that's because... Genuine spiritual growth always begins in the mind, or in the mind, not down here with how I feel, all right? And, and I emphasize that because we live in a hyper-emotional age where, where everything is about how I feel. I remember a few weeks ago, I read a tweet, and, and it just shocked me. The guy said, literally, the only thing you should do in life is maximize your happiness, And hopefully, the things that make you happy also help other people in the process. And it just, it was striking. 
Because, because and, and by the way, folks, that's not like weird outlier thinking. Right? So like our culture increasingly believes that the highest moral good you can do, the most honorable thing you can do, is to chase what's in here. What I want is what matters. And if you don't chase what you want, if you don't chase your heart and chase your dreams, you know, if you're not true to yourself, then, then you are actually being immoral. That's what our culture believes. So, so everything is about how I feel. But in contrast, Christianity always prioritizes the mind. Now, our faith is driven by truth, by grace, and by duty, and those things don't, res- don't uh, arise from within me, right? They're outside of me. They are in God and His Word. So spiritual growth always begins in the mind. And Scripture teaches that as I renew my mind, my affections and my actions will follow. So, so if you want to be godly, don't begin with how you feel. You know, don't evaluate your godliness based on how you feel, and, and don't begin by trying to change how you feel. No, begin with the mind. And as your thinking is, is discipled, as your thinking is transformed, then, then everything else will follow. So, so, so dive into God's Word. Fill your mind with truth. You know, saturate your, your heart with Scripture. Think on truth. Talk about truth. You know, and by the way, I mean, the, I mean this idea... Is a, is a foundational belief about why, how, how we do church. You know, because when you come to LifePoint, our, 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 our fundamental goal is not to create a, a mood or a feeling in here, right? I mean, that, that, that's important. We, God wants us to worship Him with our whole person. But, but spiritual growth begins in the mind. So, so, so the highest priority I have in spiritual growth is the transformation of the mind. So, so we want to teach you God's Word. Because as your mind is renewed, everything else will follow. So with that in mind, notice that Paul describes renewing the mind by means of a strong contrast. So first of all, God commands me, do not be conformed to this world. Now, now, the world that Paul has in mind here is not the planet Earth, right? No, no he's talking here about this evil age that, that Satan dominates. You know, it's what we oftentimes call worldliness. And so, and so the Bible teaches that, 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 that human culture is, is dominated, is driven by philosophies and value systems that, that, that ultimately are hostile to, to a God-centered way of thinking. You know, so in particular, and, and, and there's lots of philosophies, there's lots of worldviews in our, in our world today, but, but you know, all of them, well, none of them are God-centered, right? I mean, anything that is not rooted in Scripture, it's, it's not rooted fundamentally in who God is and my submission to Him. And really, you know, for, for almost everyone, I am the center of my universe. You, know, you think about that, that tweet about happiness, I mean, it's about me. I am God. You know, as well, uh, you know, worldly value systems are, are almost always focused on immediate pleasure and, and worldly ambitions, not heavenly ones. You know, we could go on and on, and, and, and I'll probably preach a sermon at some point this year where we get more into that type of thing. 
But, but you get the point. You know, that every day we are surrounded by, by philosophies, we are surrounded by worldviews that, that, that dramatically shape how people think and live. And, and, and all of them that are not rooted in Scripture are hostile towards a biblical mind and a biblical life. And, and, and fundamentally, therefore, you know, the, the reason we as Christians are outsiders in the world is, is not because we dress weird or we talk weird or we don't watch the same things. The fundamental reason why I am a stranger and pilgrim in the earth is because my foundational beliefs, my foundational values are antithetical. They are going the opposite direction of the unbeliever around me. And, and Paul warns that, 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 that in understanding this, we need to know that the world is trying to conform us to its likeness. It's trying to squeeze you into its mold. So, so you could think here, you know, you know, of kids with Play-Doh, right? They get out the Play-Doh and it's, it's mushy and you can form it. You can press it into whatever shape you want. And Paul says that the world is trying to press you into its shape. It is trying to conform you to its likeness. It wants you to think like it thinks, love what it loves, look like them, and behave like them. And we all feel that pressure. We all feel that pressure. You know, our flesh longs for worldly pleasures and, and acceptance. We want people to accept us. We want people to like us and respect us. And because that pressure is so great, it's very easy for us to begin to become conformed to the world. And then what happens is we become calloused to how the world is squeezing us into its mold. And then what happens is we begin to justify our conformity to the world. I mean, we can be incredible lawyers, can't we? At coming up with ways to justify what we think is right. And, 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 and so often we, we feel no guilt about how we are being shaped, how we're being pressed into this mold. And we have no idea what's happening. You know, but I wonder, I mean, imagine what it would be like. If, if the Apostle Paul were to walk into the typical American evangelical church or, or the typical Christian home in our, fan, in, in our country, I mean I, I mean, I am confident that he would be appalled at so much of what Christians do and say and think and, and, and boast in with, without any sense of guilt or sorrow. We so easily become callous to the perversity of our age, and, and we do not appreciate just how vile and disgusting it is to our Lord. But God here tells us in this passage that we have been devoted to Him, and, and there is no way that I can present myself to Him as a holy and acceptable sacrifice and be conformed to this world. It can't happen. You, you cannot be an insider in this godless, forsaken world and please the Lord. It, it's simply not happening. So by God's grace, we need to not let the world squeeze us into its mold. No, instead, Paul says, that we must be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, now it's noteworthy uh, that Paul here doesn't only tell us to resist worldliness, so we need to be transformed because, because worldliness doesn't just reside out there. It resides in here. My biggest spiritual threat is Kit Johnson. 
It's not everything that's going on out there. So, so I need to be transformed from the inside out. Now, now, I do want to emphasize that this verb, be transformed, is in the passive voice, all right? So, so going back to your elementary grammar days, that means that ultimately someone else is doing the action. And the Scriptures tell us that it is God who ultimately transforms us. So 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that, that we are transformed, we are being transformed by the Spirit. So ultimately, it's God's Spirit who, who does this. I, I can't transform myself, ultimately speaking. But, but on the other hand, there's also a command. I mean, He's not telling you to just sit back, take it easy, sip on some lemonade, and wait for God to transform you. He says, be transformed. So, so, so I need to go through the process of doing all that God commands me so, so that I am changed. And, and the Scriptures teach uh, that fundamentally God does this as I behold the glory of the Lord. So, so as I see the face of Christ, as I understand His glory, I become like Him. So I need to be in the Word. I need to meditate on Scripture throughout the day. I need to sing about the glory of God. I need to listen to other people sing about God's glory. I need to talk about God's glory with fellow Christians. I need to discipline myself to behold the glory of the Lord and to come to God's Word with a heart to to hear and respond. And of course, it's not just good enough that I see Jesus. I also need to eliminate the worldly influences that are contrary to this work that God wants to do. Again, there is so much trash in our world. So much trash. And there is no way that you can be transformed into a worthy sacrifice if you are just constantly shoving garbage in your eyes and your ears. So, so, so folks, uh, I mean, understand that the work that God wants to do, and understand as well you know, that, that Satan, you know, Satan can be very subtle at times. He doesn't just use shock and awe. I mean, yet generally speaking, as we talked about last Sunday, he, he's very good at slow drift and, 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 and subtle influences. You even just, I mean, if you spend all day watching the news, I mean, what's wrong with watching the news? Well, the reality is, is that everybody that tells the news is telling it from the perspective of a worldview. And, and, and even, you know, unless someone is expressly presenting the news from a Christian perspective, there are values there are philosophies that undergird every story that they tell. And you are being shaped. You are being fed ideas. Even doing something as innocent as watching the news. I'm not saying don't watch the news. I'm saying that we need to be discerning and we need to be intentional about everything that we do in our life. So, so Christian, God says that the foundation of a life that is acceptable to God is a transformed mind. So do not let Satan, the world, or your own flesh drive your thoughts and values. No. Be transformed by the grace of God into His likeness through through discipline and strategic work. So, so, So do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then the fourth challenge in this text is live a life that reflects God's character. So, so look, at the, look at the end of verse 2. So he tells us to, to not be conformed, but to be transformed. And he says, the ultimate goal is that you may prove 
what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. All right, so, so notice, you know, I mean, think about the logical progression of the text, right? So, so I've received mercy. I want to present my life as a sacrifice to God. How do I do that? Well, first of all, I need to renew my mind. I need a transformed way of thinking. And then the result of that is, is that I have a transformed process of making decisions. I, I am able to prove or discern what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And when we read through this statement, I think it's important to remember uh, Paul's historical context. So, so we're used to statements like this, but, but it's important to remember that, that Paul grew up a Jew. He grew up a Pharisee. So from the time that he was born, he had been taught that the Mosaic Law and the Jewish traditions that surrounded the Mosaic Law, that those things defined very specifically what it means to live according to the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. So, so you even wanted to decide how far you could walk on the Sabbath. There was a law for that. You wanted to decide how to cook your meat. There was a law for that. You wanted to decide how to spend your money. There was a law for that. I mean, they had multitudes of laws that, that defined holiness down to the most minute details. So, so Paul here turns around and, and he, shifts, he steers us towards a radically different direction. Because he's saying that, that rather than God defining for us every little detail, he has called us instead to practice discernment. So, so we are to exercise wisdom and discerning what God's will truly is. So that means that, that I need to know God's word. And I need to know how to apply God's word to every facet of life. How I use my time. How I use my money. What entertainment is appropriate. How I should care for my body and, and everything else. Now, now, I want to emphasize too though. You know, the, the, yes, I mean, you know, the, the New Testament says that, that the law has been abolished. The, the Mosaic law. So, so yet, typically, we hear that and we think, yippee. No law. I can do what I want. But, 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 but when it's important that we understand that, that this shift from, from detailed laws to discernment does not mean that, that God's will has now turned into Plato. You know, that, that I can basically, you know, just again, shape God's will into whatever shape I want. And, and it's going to be good and acceptable and perfect to God because I think it is. I mean, no. I mean, Paul tells us that the goal is to discern what is good and acceptable, what is God's good, acceptable, and perfect will. So, so God's will is good. And, and I think it's, it's just good to remember that all the time, because sometimes God's will is scary. Sometimes it's, it's, there's consequences, there's, there's pain that comes with God's will. But, but God's will is always good. I should never be afraid to do what God wants me to do. Now, secondly, he tells us that God's will is acceptable, and specifically, it is acceptable to God. So, so what ultimately drives my decision-making is not what's going to make my parents happy, or my kids happy, or, or my friends happy, or my pastor happy. What I need to do is what is acceptable to God. My goal in everything is to please Him. And then third, I want to discern what is God's perfect will. Meaning there that it is pure it is clean, it is righteous. So, so Christian discernment is not about finding a way to justify what I want to do. 
No, it's about transforming my mind into the image of the Savior so I think like, I think, like He thinks and I love what He loves. And as a result, when I look at my checkbook, when I look at my planner, when I look at the TV guide, I think the same way God would. And I want what He wants and I chase what He would desire. And I want to emphasize today that developing this sort of this discernment is a lifetime of hard work. You will always have more to learn about the will of God. I mean, so, so every time you read the Scriptures, you read uh, even, you know, some, some, some prophecy or a story. I mean, there are, there are principles and that, that are, there are ideas about God, about what God loves and what He hates and how He responds to this and that that are all embedded in there. The Scriptures are filled with, with principles and ideas, commands, wisdom. So, so it is a lifetime process of me taking all that in and building that into my grid of discernment. You know, it's not just that I need to know God's Word more. The fact is, is that the world is always changing. So, so, so what was a, a wise, right standard 50 years ago may not actually be the same today because I don't live in the same world that was around 50 years ago. So, so this work of, of practicing discernment is a lifetime of hard work. So, so don't get lazy. Keep studying God's Word. Keep praying. Keep thinking. Discern the perfect will of God. And then I also want to emphasize that, that doing this requires genuine godliness. I remember a few years ago a reading of, when I was doing youth work, a reading Paul Tripp's book on parenting teenagers. And and, and he, it struck me uh, when he said that, that teenagers are often the worst legalists. I was like, no, wait, wait, wait. Teenagers aren't legalists. They hate rules. They want you to get out of their life and, and take every rule away. But, but his point was, is that teenagers generally aren't committed to the heart of the law. They're committed to the letter of the law. You know, so they're like little lawyers, you know, who, who are good at finding technicalities and, you know, technically I'm obeying the law, but I found a loophole so that I can do what I want to do. And, and by the way, teenagers, we all do that. We all have that problem. It's not just teenagers that do that. We all have that tendency that we come to God's Word not fundamentally to find the perfect, acceptable, good will of God, but to find my will and to find a way to make my will look spiritual. And that's not what God wants. You can't fulfill verse 2 if you come to the will of God with your own agenda. And God isn't merely looking for technical obedience. He is looking for genuine submission and faith that believes that His will is good and right. And so I want to do what He desires. So, so Christian, you need to work to, to discern what pleases the Lord, believing that His will is good. So, so today, as we, as we wrap up, this passage reminds us, first of all, of the mercies of God. God has been so good to us, and He has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. So today, every day, this week, when you're at work and, and people are pushing on you, present your life a living sacrifice to the Lord. Give Him everything that you have. And work to not let your thinking be conformed to this world, but by God's grace be transformed so, so that you 
chase after what pleases the Lord and make decisions that honor Him and reflect the fact that you are devoted to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Lord, thank You for Your mercies. Lord, Your mercies are glorious and grand. They are wonderful. So, Lord, we thank You for the Gospel. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today that has never received the Gospel, they've never turned their heart to Christ, Lord, I pray that today they would do so. And Lord, I pray for us who are saved. God, I pray that You would encourage us in this struggle. I pray that You would convict us where we have allowed a sin and deceitfulness to creep in. And Father, I pray that we would live lives that are pleasing to You, that we would glorify You by living wholly dedicated to our Lord. And so Lord, we need Your help. Uh, we need You to give us wisdom and understanding in a complicated, hard world. So Lord, we thank You that You've given us all the grace that we need, so help us this week to rely on Your grace, trust in Your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.